Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Journey Driver Podcast. I'm excited to have our guest Kevin here with me today. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for welcoming me on. I'm excited. Thank you for being the first Journey Driver on here. I'm a privilege. It's a sacred space. All right. So um, we'll talk a little bit about your childhood, if you can tell me uh, what that was like for you. That'd be wonderful. Um, So recently, I was driving. Like for me on this journey to be free, the place that I, I'll talk more about this because since I've been home, this has been the my thinking chair. And I was driving and I realized that I grew up in Minneapolis, like all I'm from Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and that's that's a kid. But it was I was born in the Ida B. Well projects in Chicago, from zero to six years old, and I'm still that kid, like that was birthed there. Like all of the lessons that I know, my worldview. <laughs> who I loved, how I loved them, how you roll, who I, who you are. <clears throat> like the first lesson that I ever learned was before you can go outside of my family and play with the rest of the kids, you had to know one thing. And it was, if one go, then y'all all go. And if you didn't know that, you weren't ready to go outside yet. I remember that, like, <laughs> grandma then was like that. Are you, oh, you trying to go out the door? What's the rules? And, and when you knew that, Long as you knew that, you could roll with my family, aunties, uncles. Before we leave out the door, <laughs> you know, like so. My childhood was filled with those lessons and and that love and the, those traditions and those hearts and those peoples in that village. Now, amongst that was also a lot of dysfunction. My mom, I was born a crack baby. I was born in 1986 on the south side of Chicago. My mom was. I was a fourth child. My mom was cute, like bad, strung out, smoked herself to death, addicted to crack during her pregnancy with me. And my grandma and my aunties and everybody just thought you pregnant with that boy. That boy gonna come out. Like they was all prepared for me to like come out, ready to take care of like an autistic child. So like my granddad was like already creating the infrastructure because my mom was just like hell bent on smoking crack. But I didn't. I came out with 10 fingers, 10 toes, hope the black boy grows. Um, always knew how to write my name and spell and understand and like the world. I knew math. I was always, I don't say smart, but I always knew how to comprehend. Um, so my childhood was that as well, too. Um, really having to defy the odds from day one. Like, like from day one. My dad was dead. My dad died when I was two. I never knew him. Sorry. Yeah, only thing I got is his name. I'm a junior. And I looked like him. And I carried that proudly. Like, that was really all I needed was, you look, everywhere I went, you look just like your dad. And I was proud to be Kevin Reese. Like, I was always proud. I ain't even mad at Pops. Like, he was suffering from something. My dad committed suicide. And I recently just found that out as well, too. I found that out like my last year in prison. Um, <clears throat> I had talked to his mom, his grandma, my grandma, his mom. And I just needed to know because it was always like speculation around how my dad died. So I talked to her and she was like, no, you know, told me the truth that he killed himself. And for a moment I wasn't mad. And then I went back to my cell and I was like, by that time I had been in prison 13 years and it was killing me. I had one year left but I had did everything the system could ask. By that time, I'm like 31 years old. I got to feel I'm in a prime of my life. I had a job waiting on me. I had voices for racial justice. I had money. I had family structure. My son needed me at the time. Everything was like in place for me. And I had to sit there for like those last two years. torture. <laughs> Them last two years. Like, cause I thought at the end it was gonna get easy. At the beginning, I'm saying at the end, I'll be easy breezy, I'm finna go home, but no. The last two years was tough. So I found that out during those years and I was thinking like, I won't harm myself because of Kevin. Like the thought across your mind, you don't want to tap out. It'll go through a human. And then it'd be like, but it'd be like, no, that's not even an option. So I had to swallow like, I wish you wouldn't have left me, you know, cause you knew my mom was addicted to drugs. You knew my family poverty, south side of Chicago, everybody selling drugs, using drugs. Like you knew, like you would leave me in that. I was like, ooh, that was tough. Right, that was tough. But I still forgave him though. 
Like, I, I was mad for about two days, and then I was just like, um, I, I forgave him. I got a, it's one of my favorite verses by Jay-Z that I heard when I was about 16, and I was in that place where I was trying to figure it out. And I'm a hip-hop kid, so I used to listen to rap. And it's, you know, it's the first verse of a moment of clarity. And it's like, I remember hearing this when I was 16, and it's like, that's how I like decided to do it. So I'm gonna spit it like shout out to my homie Jay. It was my favorite verse by Jay-Z. So it go, Pops died, didn't cry, didn't know him that well. Between him doing heroin and me doing crack sales, with that in the eggshell, standing at the top of NACO, or rather the church pretending to be hurt, one work, so a smirk was all on my face. Like damn that man face is just like my face. So Pops, I forgive you for all the shit that I lived through. It wasn't all your fault, homie. You got caught. Took the same game I fought. My Uncle Jay lost. My big brothers and so many others I saw. I'm just glad we got to see each other, talk and we meet each other, save a place of heaven to the next time we meet forever. And I remember hearing that verse and I used to just put it on repeat. And that was like how I came to peace with my pops. Like, should I forgive you for all the shit that I lived through? Like, that was 16. Where so, exactly were you when you were hearing these verses? In my garage, bagging up weed. Okay. Yep. 28 for Morgan. I appreciate the honesty. That's what I was at in my life, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my son, mom was pregnant with him. I was 16 years old. I was 16. I had Kevin when I was 16 years old. And I was 16 and I had a son on the way. Hell, I done did now. <laughs> 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 but I had to still like take care of it and I, I come from family that love each other and he was gonna be a Reese and he's been good like this this is my joy it's my pride and joy now but yeah I was always a natural father like from even though that young like was there the whole time my family been involved the whole time when I was away he was pretty much with my family a lot no, Kevin has been a part of our village since it was almost like he was destined. Wasn't nobody even sort of surprised or mad like I thought they would be. It was more, it was just, it's different. It was almost like he was destined to be a part of the family in yeah. that way. So, so um, what was like preparing to, you know, join the fatherhood? I was, so during that time also, like when she was about six months, I ended up in a juvenile placement because I was 16, doing what I just told her, I was in the streets. So I ended up in county homeschool. And I really ain't do nothing. I, I, my, the conditions was truancy. I was 16, I had dropped out of school. So I wasn't going to school. So they had warrants out for you for truancy. And it was something like cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. We'd be on the block. They all know we the juvenile delinquents that hang around here, sell drugs around here every day, and they'll be out there looking for us, and we'll be trying to make money and stay away from them. Like, when I think back to it, it was just what we did. Like, it was, we felt more comfortable there, right? It was a subculture, because, like, nowhere outside of that you feel accepted or to be your authentic self. And all we wanted to say is we didn't want to work for the white man. <clears throat> Or like necessarily know what y'all teaching in these schools don't matter what's really going on in our homes. You know what I mean? Really, we ain't did nothing to y'all. Why y'all in y'all our neighborhood messing with us? Right? Like in the big scheme of things, we ain't called y'all. We ain't, we ain't threw no rock at y'all. We ain't did nothing to jeopardize the lives of like they're really being in the community as like terrorists. Like just in the community, not um, being a peace offer, keeping the peace would be the actual thing that triggers some of the chaos, just their, their, their presence. When they present with black and brown bodies, something happens to them. So, um, North Minneapolis is where I was at when that was happening though, yeah. during my adolescent years. Right? I grew up over there. So I think too often we don't get to ask um, when talking about you know the street life, did the street choose you or did you choose it? I did a lot of choosing. Because I was always capable to think and like the things about being like, you know, God of the universe. You could be creative. And some of the eternal oppression would maybe think you can't do this or you can't do that. But I always knew that I could do whatever I put my mind to. Like I was just choosing to do that because it was easy. 
And if I, it was also a lie, like white supremacy is a lie for its own reasons. And that lie that circulates in our community as well, that be perpetuated, is also a lie. I had an opportunity to be whatever I wanted to be, and that's the truth. Um, and you make decisions because you think that you will say, okay, this is what it means to be me. And most of the times when you make decisions like that, it be based off a description somebody else gave you. And you and a lot of the a lot, a lot of the kids that age and even I like they just playing a role. They really just society said this is what it means to be me, so I'm that. Like you know, my family grew up is generational now, so they say this is what it means to be me, so I'm that. Um, that was. The, the, how I broke the chain, understanding that that was one of the ways the, that I broke the that mental barrier during my journey was understanding that. Understanding that white supremacy is real. Understanding that, of course, we was born with the short end of the stick and like the chances of making out of those situations was going to be tough just because of the world that we live in. But along that journey, you still had choices and you still had opportunities. And God was still talking to you. Like, God been with me since day one. Like, God was walking with you and giving you ways out. But those ways were scary and you didn't know and you wasn't sure. Um, so I would definitely say I was born where I was born at. And where I was born at, those were the psychological change that was rotating in that universe. Um, so... In that universe, choosing the streets was a normal decision. It was normal behavior. But like, once you expand, you realize, no, that's actually abnormal behavior. But every day to sell drugs, this was what I supposed to be. Couldn't convince me that what I was doing was wrong. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, it'll be a problem. Like, it was like I was that because this is what it means. This is what I gotta do. Yeah, and I think too when you see it in the environment, and that that being a typical thing for that environment. Like, how do you know better? How do you choose better? What's well, better, right? So, that took a, a journey <laughs> to be able to break, get the, the distance to be able to break those chains. So, as a young black man, um, to be exact, at the age of 16, mm -hmm. uh, expecting uh, a child on the way, mm -hmm. that's a lot. It was. I had a born. Oh, <laughs> Right? Yeah. Remember she was pregnant and then my PO pretty much called me like on my juvenile PO like your ass is grass, we gotta warn our PO arrest. You ain't been to school in three weeks. You just gotta warn. Turn yourself in, but you have a warrant. So I'm yeah, alright, catch me, you know, it's bad of you too. So I I'm on the run. So I just remember being 16 year old, like the whole summer of 2002, like having a warrant. Like, but I'm in the same neighborhood. I live at my grandma's house. They looking for me there every day. So I'm like sneaking in the back door, running out the side door. It was crazy, right? Um, and I had this son on the way. What was the internal feeling? Minus um, what was going on on the external. I needed my dad. Aspect of things. Okay. That was the age I needed my dad. That's why when I heard that verse from Jay, like help heal. Cause I, I, it was something missing and I didn't know what it was. It was like, cause my sister's name was doing well and everybody like, they kind of got it. And I got left at grandma's house and I couldn't like, it was something missing. And I realized like a boy needs his father. And at that age is when I needed my dad most. That's what it was. From your siblings, were you the only boy? Yeah, I'm the youngest boy. Oh, I'm the big boy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm the baby boy, yeah. How many girls? Three, I got three big sisters. Yeah, one of my big sisters' birthday today. Happy birthday, Isha. You will hear this one day. It's January 25th. For sure. Happy yeah. birthday to the queen. Absolutely. Um, and so not having your father to kind of provide you with that guidance, mm -hmm. uh, that's really important in all our lives, right? Absolutely. Um, and then hearing that you're expecting a child. So. And processing that. Yeah. Um. Or were you even in a space to process No, that? I was. No, I was. I remember um, fully embracing what this was finna mean. And while my son, while my son, mom was pregnant with Kevin, um, you know, he was like doing stuff in the streets and like right on her block. And one day, because of some, you know, some activities, I lit she almost literally seen me get killed while she was pregnant with Kevin. Like, 
like in a car, the car that shot at like, I don't know what kind of gun these dudes had, but it sounded like 500 shots, like every door, every window, tires. I didn't get hit, I didn't get hit. And she was like in the window, like watching out the window. And I think that traumatized her. You know what I mean? I, I, at the time, it was normal. It was. This was while she was pregnant. While she was pregnant, she was about four months pregnant with Kevin at the time. Yeah, and um, some people brought it to her front door because they knew I'd be over there. Like, you know what I mean? Called me coming up out of there. They knew my baby mom stayed there. Like, you know, that's what it was. And um, yeah, but I didn't get hit. So at the time, it was normal. Like, I never been shot, so I'm not shot now. They tried to shoot me, so I still don't understand. Didn't understand it at the time. It really didn't. And this was until years later. Like, but wow, but no, she's seen that. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, dang, but she's seen that. While pregnant. While pregnant, right? It didn't hit years later in prison. Like, and it was just like, wow, like the impact. And I had to sit with that. And like, try to heal from that. And oh, I remember calling her like, while I was in there just because we was. Oh, we was teenagers when we had Kevin. By this time, we were like 22, 23. I mean, his mom was always cool while I was in prison. She like lived her life, but she took good care of Kevin. Never kept him away from me and my family. Anytime I called, she answered. It was always love. Like I give her that. She did an amazing job with Kevin. Like she was a teenage girl. I left her out as a teenage girl, and she she did an amazing job with Kevin. And for that, like it's always love and respect. She left when I came out. She moved out of town, <laughs> handed me over Kevin. Thank you. He's a good kid now, too. So she did a good job raising him from zero to 15. Like, um, but being a father, didn't know what that meant. I didn't really understand exactly, you know, his capacity until he was born and I had to buy stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. And those conversations. Yeah, right. His face, like, his face was just like my face, too. Like, I love my son. Like, he was just my son. So it was natural. Like, I was naturally his father. So I did buy stuff, whatever he needed. His mom, like, everything that they needed, they was good. Like, between me and my family, he was always good. And that's why I continue my, <laughs> my, I'm going to say that's why. I'm going to say that's why. During that time, I decided to continue to, like, sort of be in the streets. Get a job and get some slow money, and you know, I don't even want to do it. What'd you say, slow money? Like, I can get a job and get like slow money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like okay. it's money, but it's slow money. The people I'm around need money every day. So, right? why was it considered to be slow money? Because you like get a paycheck every two weeks versus I know I can go do some stuff today and come back with some money. Oh, okay. Right? Like, I'll bring money home every day, and it was just more, felt more in my control. Versus going here, deal with these white people, get paid every two weeks. Between two weeks, man, people don't got shot. <laughs> like all type of, you know what I mean? Yeah. So you can't go two weeks like without making money, right? That's just the way you approached it. Cause you'd be like, by the time I get the job, it's gonna take two weeks or three weeks before I get my first paycheck. And you'd be like, by three weeks, man, I'll be balling. Like <laughs> <laughs> give me different mentality for sure. <laughs> yeah. Give me three weeks, I'll be balling. Right? I'm going to have a new leather coat on in three weeks. What you talking about? So, um, that's what we did. Like, And we felt empowered in that space. Like, Before we had nothing, we just wanted to at least try to go get everything. And we felt empowered in that space. Okay. <laughs> we did. Uh, were you present when your son was born? Yes, I was. Yeah. Can you like walk me through what was that like for you? Mm-hmm. Um, Take your time. Yeah, May 1st, 2003. Um, the Timberwolves was getting beat by the Lakers in the playoffs. I remember that. The Lakers was just out there doing KG in any kind of way. So I was, cause I was watching a game in the room, in the hospital room. And um, she went into labor. Like, and she pushed and uh, did the thing. Right? I was there. I had like a little leg thing. <laughs> 
know. I was, he had a role in it. Yeah, I was in there. Definitely. Yeah, and yeah. Um, Kevin came out. He creeped me out because his head was like the cone head. I had never seen a baby be born that close up. So I'm, I'm like, oh, no, I'm my baby. I thought he was like, <laughs> but they was like, no, he's fine, he's fine. I'm like, okay, I didn't know that that was normal. And uh, he didn't cry. When he came out, he didn't cry. Um, until I cut the umbilical cord. And when I cut the umbilical cord, he cried. Wiped him down, he did all of his stuff. But I was the first person he seen him doing. Like, he opened his eyes, shut him up, and was looking at my son. What an honor to have you. Yeah, yeah, I was the first person he seen, and I was just like, damn. I just felt my soul in him. Like, damn, it's my son. Man. At the time, I was in a juvenile placement, too. Okay. Yeah, I was in a juvenile placement, and the case manager there, when I first got there, I told him, listen, you ain't gonna have no problems out of me. And they come in, oh, Mr. Kevin Reese, you know, just listen, baby, we're gonna be cool. And I like this. Make sure that I'm there with my son born. I'll be cool out here. And she did. She did. She made that work for life. She gave my son, mom, her um, cell phone number. Like, when you go on the labor, just call me. Or, I don't even think people have cell phones like that, but maybe a next page or something like that. Yeah. But, um, they did it, probably had them, but they look like uh, those cordless phones. Yeah, yeah, one of those early 2000s. So, but, but she did. She made it happen. Yeah, so I was there. Yeah, I was there. Yeah. I think those cell phones used to be as, like, as big as those cordless phones. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, you had to flip a Nextel. Or like a pager. Or a two-way. Yeah, like, something. Like, yeah. Um, so, but, yeah. Like, what, what else? What, uh, what was, like, that first year of fatherhood like? Oh, it was great. That was probably the most peaceful in depressing time in my life because <clears throat> I didn't want to, like, when Kevin was born, I didn't want to, like, be in the streets no more. I remember, I just, just, I took a whole, like, summer and just sat in the house with Kevin. Like, my last summer, from summer 2004, <clears throat> I really, before all of this happened that I went to prison for, I really was in a space where I just felt the heaviness of something was going to shift in my life and I didn't know what or how or whatever. But I had my son, and I just remember just almost spending that summer with my son. And I, I really wasn't over north. My grandma had moved to St. Paul, so I kind of just be over here at my granny crib chilling. Um, and I did that for like the summer. And then when I turned 18, September 21st, 2004, I woke up mad as hell. I woke up mad as a bitch. I remember like. Wake up, I woke up at my granny house, I was 18, and I was like, I got the fuck up out of there, right? Like, it just left and went back to the streets, like, full force, gone. What caused that? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I was broke. Okay. I woke up broke. Like, I had, I had, I had no money. Like, I, had, I got a son, I'm 18, I live in my granny house, I was, I had out the nest. Like, gone. Literally on my 18th birthday. And three months later, um, when I went to prison happened. That was three months later. Like three months later, I went to prison for murder. Yeah. So it was so that was my childhood, my adolescence. That was zero to eighteen <clears throat> highlighted in that space. So what how, wow, that's a lot. It is. Um, and thank you for being truthful. Um, as far as life and the shifts that were taking place in your life, mm-hmm. mentally, like, where were you at? Like, how were you feeling? Confused. Didn't have, didn't have the answers or asking the right questions, but feeling confused and conflicted and incomplete. I just remember from the incomplete, like, I just felt there was a whole couple holes in my heart. I just felt incomplete, and I didn't really know how to be complete. I didn't really know. So, the whole moment, from when I think back to it, the feeling mostly was incomplete. Incomplete. Did you know this particular experience was going to shift your entire world? Yeah, in the county. Like, not at first when it first happened, 
at first when it first happened, because I was on the run for like a month and a half. So after it happened, it didn't really, it was still not real to me. Like it was still like, but in the county, before I went to prison, after I took like my plea, but part of when I took the plea was that like God had promised me like that I was gonna be okay. y'all done did and my granny was in the street like my granny was a G like that like boy you ain't gotta get on the phone and I don't care who but you know what she was out there doing right and you know, let them people give you life take the time you know come on and so so going into it I didn't, I didn't have no idea that <clears throat> the criminal justice system was gonna be the thing that I realized that was also the 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 third party and a lot of trauma for me like that was always them to come and take my body right if, since a child I was in juvenile places and stuff since I was like 10, 11 years old and, and I was no angel but I was never violent I didn't have no violent stuff like I, when I go to school they'll probably catch me with some weed but they like locked me away for months and months at a time and it just became normal. Um, so I didn't know that that was gonna be the thread that I realized that was weaved like until I got to prison. Like the puzzle wasn't complete, back to incomplete. It wasn't complete until I had to grow and breathe. And sad as it is, going to prison forced me to have to be my own man. Right? Cause like my grandma and them didn't raise no food. I really come from some real motherfuckers. So I remember going in prison, like, even if I'm gonna go I'm gonna be in prison these years, I'm gonna still not be there like an idiot. Or like nobody I've never i I'm still not taking no no wood nickels, you know. And I remember just like okay, just grow and evolve. And, so during that time, I, I was on my own. That's the thing about prison. You, you're on your own. You gotta fit. You could call home. They can come visit you. You could do whatever. But this is a journey that you're gonna go on alone. Right? How old were you when you entered prison? Nineteen. Okay. When I got to Saint Cloud, I was nineteen. What was it like They tell it to you in months, they don't say years. So they say, we're gonna sentence you to 264 months in the state of Minnesota. And the judge told me, well, I'm sorry. Um, it's, you know, you're so young, you give this amount of time, but the guidelines is what they are. We just have to do what we have to do. And that's how she sentenced me. Boss, as you stood there and you were hearing No, I had already <clears throat> numbed myself to it before I came into the courtroom. Yeah, I couldn't, I knew I couldn't, like, allow my heart to feel that in real time. So I, I'm blessed with the ability to compartmentalize like that. Like, I, could, I forgive real easy. I get over stuff real easy. I've also, I learned that about myself. I'm really compassionate. I don't really like being mad. I really don't want to hurt nobody. I just love my family. Like, I, I love my son, I love being a father. I like writing. Like, I had to discover that to be okay with, you no, know, that's who Kevin is. Like, Kevin is actually a poet. Like, I had to, like, look in the mirror and say, he was out here doing all this gangster shit, dude. But you're actually a poet, man. That ain't even what you wanted to do. You're actually a writer. Like, the, so I always knew that those other things was in my heart, but I just had to give myself permission to be those things um, and create enough velvet love around you to be able to do that um, so I didn't feel that in my heart in the courtroom I had you know I was able to pull out some black boy magic and like freeze my heart to that white lady I wasn't gonna let her speak to my heart nope so I went in there already with my heart 
off the table. <laughs> yeah. What a gift to have. Yeah. You know, it's, it's important to not to let people that you don't want to give permission to, to have that type of access to you. So. I'm not giving access to my heart. You know? I went in there like it was business. Like, do what you got to do. Like, it was cool. So, in regards to life and mistakes, um, what would you say was the biggest mistake for you? Your biggest mistake? So, my mom was, you know, my mom had a, a, a you know, a, I won't say difficult relationship, but we had a, a difficult relationship. Our relationship was really different with me than with my sisters. So, my mom was the cause of a lot of trauma for me. <clears throat> Even when I was young, the reason why I'm quiet is because she used to scream and yell. And like, and like something froze me. I remember in my childhood too, like I don't like screaming and yelling or loud noises. It, I can't handle it. I get anxiety. Um, and that was the torture part about prison. That was the worst thing about prison. It was the loudest place, like people banging. And, and that like literally uh, had me like sweating, like that type of Um, but through all of that, the one thing that my mom used to tell me, anytime she sees me, she could be high on drugs, whatever, she just robbed somebody, running from the police, and no matter what she was doing, because I just see my mom in the hood sometimes, she was out there. I literally would catch my mom about a liquor store, because I'm around there doing something I don't got no business doing, and see my mom. But anytime she seen me, boy, you better not be no follower, be a leader. That's the only thing she ever told me. Every time she could be drunk, high, whatever, she'll come up out of it anytime she see me and tell me that. And then she'll talk some more shit. But she'll tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> but she'll tell me that. Right? And I went to prison because I wasn't being a leader. That wasn't she was giving me my gift, like in her drunkest highs, and that's why I later forgave her. She was telling me who I was. And even because my mom suffered from like mental illness a little bit. And she was, like, the only lesson she ever gave me, and that was, like, in prison was a part of my awakening. Like, you weren't born to even be a follower. Like, and that's when the gem that she used to give me from all those years, that's when the seed took root. Like, oh, your mom been telling you your whole life. I was, like, 18 in a county jail in the hole because I had got into a fight while I was fighting my case. Like, a hot summer night of 2005, like, I was in the county I realized that, remember that, that like poetry about it, you know, like, so that was my mistake, that I wasn't a leader, and a leader being able to give myself permission to listen to God, and listen to the quiet voice that guides you, because mm-hmm. I always knew what I should be doing, but I was like, drowning it out, and that was like, one of the first of many steps along the journey, like back. Like that was the one I learned that. So when you think of uh, self-forgiveness, what comes to mind? Oh, you gotta forgive yourself. Oh, I forgive me some me because like once you know your own heart, then you like understand that you're on a journey I hate to keep it simple, like, and along this journey, these experiences and these situations and these circumstances is all divine. Because if, like, if you don't think that it's all divine, then how can you, like, live divine? So I embrace, I embrace everything is that, like, God has always had his hand on my life. He's kept every promise he's ever made to me. And as long as I continue to walk in my purpose, I'll be fine. So, like, Doing that process, of course, you're going to make mistakes. There's going to be things you wish you could have did better or places you or wish you could be in all the places, right? I wish I could go to every event and be in all those spaces and be fully engaged, but I just can't, right? Because you're, like, multifaceted. I'm a father. I'm still grasping with my concept of freedom. Like, being home, like, is great, but still, like, I'm so free of all of those chains that I spoke about in my childhood. None of those things interest me anymore. Like, none of that stuff. I'll see exactly for what it is. And it's funny to me now. Um, like, wow. We really had psychological change on 
I see that my worldview on that has expanded. What was the question? Well, um, mistakes. No, uh, we talked about mistakes, but we were talking about self-forgiveness. Oh, yeah, forgiveness. Like for so during that, you, you just got to forgive yourself. Like, I, I learned to forgive myself and not sit in trauma mm-hmm. or hold anything and hold resentment and bitterness. Because particularly in that place where I had the, my incubator, and we all got our journey. Some people incubated maybe the years they went to college or the years they had to go live down in another state or a situation or whatever. You know, we all have our journey. But during my journey, the incubator that I was in, <clears throat> if out of that bitterness and hate and resentment stay with me too long, like, that place will, like, eat you from the inside out. Like, so I knew that. Like, I'm really forgiving. I, like, let stuff go, move on, like, stay creative, like, keep joy in my heart. I had to do that, like, while I was in there because I wasn't going to let them, like, make me bitter or have me. In. That's their bitterness, not mine anyways. Is there a particular experience that led you to welcome uh, internal forgiveness, like self-forgiveness? Self-like, first self-discovery. And then once you discover yourself, you can actually like look at yourself and actually love your real self. And like when you love your real self, whatever I do, I knew I was moving in peace and love. And it may could be a mistake later, but at that moment, I knew, like, I just moved every day and every moment in peace and love. So if it turned out to be a mistake, at that time, I could say, well, at that time, I thought it was peace and love. So if it's a mistake, then I can apologize or work through it. But just I just move with that principle now. Like, just show up, give more than you take, right? Be life-giving, like, speak life to people. Only allow people to speak life to you. Like, just move like that. If it's a mistake, then I can live with it because I knew like my heart was like in the right place. And if it was a mistake, then I can go back and then just readjust and say, maybe you got some more stuff you need to clean up. You know what I mean? But so I just moved like that. So um, you said a life was lost in order for you to end up in prison. Yeah. Um, what was that self-forgiveness process like? You know, I. Another young kid didn't even deserve deserve that. Um, like I actually <clears throat> think about him every year on his birthday, you know, because in my paperwork his birthday was there. And I remember like when you know the victim's name and all of that. And I remember his birthday, and it's like in in my head. And I always, you know, every year I do. I would, like take a moment every year, and I don't even gotta look at the calendar like my spirit and know. And I'd be like, it's, it's sure like you to do that. Um, that's why I started doing the bridge work from inside. Yeah. That was why I started doing that. Because, for one, it could have been me. Right? Just easily, such situation, circumstances just could have been the other side. And inside of there, I was in there with a lot of my friends who also was in there for like long stretches of time for think, you know, for violence, right? Back to that subculture, like the two places that they say you end up dead or when there is true, right? And we was like on that side of it. Some of the people, most of the bridge guys that I originally started organizing with, we were all in prison for murder. Maybe 90% in the guys that organized the entire time. All of the bridge guys, really, that I worked with was mostly in prison for murder. Been in prison for long stretches of time, had to do that. And we all felt that same hurt. None of, like, most, wasn't nobody happy about it. Everybody had looked back and just think, like, in our adolescence, it was hurting each other like that. You know, the self-hate and anger and how we was just perpetuating violence and to each other because, you know, you feel like you have no control in main society, so you gonna control your block, right? And it just it creates a subculture. <clears throat> but it's just a subculture that's like birthed out of black men not feeling like they can be the authentic selves in main society, right? Like 
to fully, <clears throat> excuse me, to fully be seen. Maybe. To be fully accepted for themselves, like from the way they dress, from the way they talk, like who they are, how strong they are, like they may be direct, like just their full authentic self, right? Mm-hmm. You kind of almost got to, you know, <clears throat> code switch. And like if you a real one, you ain't going to do that too long. Like I ain't finna be around no any people that I have to be something that I'm not. Right? Like, and we be in those spaces like that, like corporate America, they think like, who wants to work in corporate America and have some white boss that's gonna like, determine your career and like, that's not appealing to the people I know. Like, it's not appealing to where we come from, to like, nobody I know wants to work for a white man. (laughs) Right? Nobody wants to do that. Like, everybody hearts like, I ain't working for the white man. (laughs) Everybody I know. Um, So, um, Self-forgiveness comes from that, from the, the bridge. It was why I started doing it, because something was lost. And the only way, the only way to even think about to, a percentage to, of, to give back what was taken was to, like, just plant seeds. That's all I can do, like, is, like, breathe and do all that I can from here on out to, like, plant seeds be a pillar of the community in any way and give back in any ways that I can. First with myself, I had to like fill myself up with self-love. And first I had to like learn to forgive myself, love myself. So I spent years pouring into myself. So that's where that self-forgiveness um, generator that I have is there. I have like a, a good ecosystem with myself, how to forgive. And I'll go through the whole process of grief. Yeah, that's <laughs> I, good. <laughs> you have a metabolism, my body a machine. Like with my feelings, it'll go through them and give me about two days. I'll be back smiling again. Like it's cool. Yeah. yeah. But even like knowing when to kind of disconnect from the external world to kind of focus on yourself and balance yourself. You have to. It's so big. No, so I applaud you for no, that. No, you have to. It's real out here. Um, this might be a, a bit difficult. Um, if you were sitting across from the mother or the father of the victim, mm-hmm. what would you say to them? The family. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Right. It'll be the first thing. father too so I'm able to think about that it's nothing never in my heart I didn't do it you know what I mean but the way the laws is set up 
I was called a murderer, but I didn't do it, right? They like ain't the betting, like, and it's known that I did. They're not even saying that I did it. They're saying we know you were there. So it's hard to wrap your brain around that, like to be a murderer, and you didn't do it. But the law says you do, you did. So I struggled with that for years and now. I still struggle with that now, honestly. I struggle with that now. Like, I still ain't okay with that. So I had to dig deeper to make sure that even with those feelings and even understanding that I didn't do it, someone still runs their life because some of my actions I was there. And you know what, maybe I could have did this or maybe I could have did that and that. I made decisions, we was all a bunch of crazies with guns, loaded guns, what you think was gonna happen? Like I had to like go down that journey too and just like accept it. Let's just say. Cause if I if I wouldn't have, then I'd have continued had a disconnect. If I would have just continued to tell myself but I didn't do it. So I had to still acknowledge that because I still feel that that's real. But go deeper and also consider all the other factors. My conversation with the family would still be in that space around even though I didn't do it, it would still be that I'm sorry and I wish that would have never happened and it didn't suppose to happen and he didn't deserve that. And all that I do now is my way of like making sure that I honor that and I honor my family and the rest of our friends and the rest of the people who those situations and circumstances happen to, right? Because nobody in the entire community lost, like, you know, maybe our sons could be the same age and be best friends, you know what I mean? Like, he could be my son football coach or mentor or, like, or someone that seen my son in the cold and he needed a ride one day, like, someone from the village was lost. Um, and for all those years, I was lost, not a part of the village, able to buy my niece and nephew ice cream cones and be with my family, you know. So, my words with them will be there. I'm sorry. What I do is my best attempt to be able to acknowledge like, what, that, what I'm sorry looks like. So, yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, since we focused a little bit on self-forgiveness, uh, I want us to kind of examine um, external forgiveness, mm-hmm. particularly, like, what does that look like for you? External, like, with others? Because mm-hmm. it starts with self. Yeah. You know? It's hard to forgive people if you haven't forgiven yourself. So yeah. how do you extend that to the external world? Oh, I'm cool. Like, I'm, I'm really in the space in my life where, like, nothing nobody can do to me. I take personal because whatever you did, I'm like, I, you probably did it because I gave you a, we was doing whatever, and I had a pure heart, and if you did it, it's fine, like, that was your, that's your, your decision, I don't hold that, so, my forgiveness for others is like, everybody, human beings, every, I, I, I wake up every day still thinking that everybody has the best intentions, you know, like, I really wake up every day thinking everybody just, Want to get to work, want to go home, take care of their kids, want to do what they got to do. I really wake up thinking, the police ain't got no reason to be messing with me. I ain't messing with them. We cool. Like, I have no suspicion of no one. I assume the best of everyone. Like, so that's part of how I'm able to forgive. Because <clears throat> if you, like, show me worse than the best, I see enough good every day to not even take it personally. <laughs> that's a gift in itself. <laughs> yeah, I slide off it. Like, it's, 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 it's plenty of beautiful people on earth. It is. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think not being able to take, like, things personally allows you to grow deeper, you know? Internally and then externally you get to pour out something more. Yeah. Because most of the time, like, if someone, something personal, on a personal attack... Most of the time, it's a reflection of what they're at. Like, it has nothing to do with you. You just happen to be the person at this particular moment. You just the one today. Right. (laughs) 
today is your day. On that clock. I would have known this. I wouldn't have came in this room, right? <laughs> right. So I would have been that. So I don't hold that. Like I'm not gonna hold whatever trauma that you. So I just um, try to be light in that way. The world's heavy enough. In college, um, there was a professor who would walk around and he would have these signs that he would wear on a daily basis, and the signs will change every day. <laughs> Say what? Just random things. And like quotes? That, and sometimes like messages or whatever it might be on right his man? mind. No, a black professor. Oh, wow. And I remember the first time just. I hate parking ramps. Like, I just, I don't like them. Like, hate is such a strong word. I'm just like, ones. yeah, you know, and yeah. sometimes they don't have the proper labeling, so you can't find where you parked your car, and that's just a whole different story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember just being frustrated about something so small like that. Nobody wants to get towed though. Yeah. That's no Well, you won't to... get towed because, you know, like you're in the ramp. But they but you're just you're just afraid of what might happen. No, not being able to find the car after I leave the meeting. Like out of the know class why I park. or whatever. Yeah. And I so like that thought of it, you know, and so uh, I'm coming out and I'm in a hurry because I don't want to be late for class and I see him for the first time <laughs> with this sign and I'm thinking to myself like what is that? <laughs> yeah, I was just curious. Um, and it says something within the lines of, you choose. Mm-hmm. True. And I was just like, True. hmm. I didn't think anything of it. I was just like, okay. I was like, he's interesting. Right. I kept him moving, went to class. And I remember walking back, being able to find my vehicle, mm. and sitting in the parking ramp for like a good 10, 15 minutes, just reflecting off of the one thing that I saw. And I was just like, what a powerful thing, you know, like sometimes the simplest thing in life, uh, we don't really like, if we're not choosing to be still, we don't allow ourselves to kind of dive in and say like, oh, why did that stick with me? All my poetry is those lines. Right? Every line of poetry is a moment I had to sit still. Like in every poem, every line is those moments. That's what I write. Yeah. So that's how I practice it too. Like, so I, practice it through poetry because like you gotta learn how to sit still and embrace because when God talks to you that's how he talks to you you don't like necessarily may come with a profound presentation no 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 a lot of the times God speaks to us in a language that we understand right because we all as children I think too like you get to meet God through other people in my opinion you know what I mean like yeah like I feel like uh, intentional like timing a lot of people out there probably like, what does that really mean? But like for Break me, like even if you have five to, you know, ten minutes out of your life, uh, for example, like yesterday I was leaving work and I was in a hurry to mm-hmm. leave and, you know, get my errands done. And the typical stuff. Mm-hmm. Adulting one-on-one, right? Yeah, well, tell me about it. And this young man, he was in uh, the building looking for resources and uh, the receptionist told him to sit and the people that he was looking for were out of the office um but you could tell he was on edge and he just needed somebody to give him time the currency of time and so i didn't think anything of it i went i shook his hand i said my name is so and so you know nice to meet you and he told me his name and i sat there and he had a little small green bible that i happen to also have the little green pocket bible yeah um it was gifted to me years ago and i was like what are the chances of that mm. um and so i sat down and i had a, like a thorough conversation with an intelligent young man awesome. incredibly intelligent be um but you know like for most people who are not used to those type of interactions mm-hmm. might think like oh he has mental health issues yeah. or he has this he has that because he's not within the norm yeah but i try my best on a daily to interact with people without But like that five to 15 minutes of conversation, just to let him know like, hey man, brother, like I see you, I appreciate you, Matters. I'm here. Matters. And at first he was like super frustrated with me because like I was unable to give him what he was looking for. Those are, those spots is always tough for us yeah. to do that work. Like, when you go, those spots are tough. 
but at the time at the same time like I was the only one out of all the people that were walking out I had my backpack I, had, I was ready to leave but I saw him and something in me said just talk thank you no it, it was an honor um, and so I was just like you know what like I remember even in college being in my cross-cultural psychology class mm, that, and, that was fun yeah. <laughs> it was cross-cultural, but there was nothing cross-cultural about it. <laughs> I was like, how do you name it cross-cultural psychology, but yet the majority of the studies are done in the U.S.? Wow. Yeah, right. you know? yeah. But it really made me think, and that's one of the reasons why I love research. I love being able to be present with people um, on a daily basis as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I'm not perfect, but I try my best. Oh, yeah. um, but I remember sitting in that classroom and having like... I have a vivid memory of that uh, day. Mm-hmm. I remember be sitting there and the professors talking about cross-cultural psychology, blah, blah, blah. And I remember thinking, I'm originally from Ethiopia. Yeah. And we were talking about you know depression and all these type of things. And I, I was just like, you know, I was like, why do some of these mental health issues don't really exist back home? And my thought process is, like, if there's a young man or a young lady crying on the street, she has had, or he has had, at least 20 people stop and ask what's going on. Right. So by the time they make it to their desti- destination, they've had 20 therapists. Right. For free. Right. <laughs> because, you know, therapy could be expensive, No, right? absolutely not. Like, and I so right. I'm thinking to myself, like, we don't do that here enough. No. We don't take time out of our life. I get it. I get it. Like, we're all busy. We have things that we need to accomplish. But at the same time, like, as a contributor to society, it makes me really wonder, like, what is really our physical presence? Like, what is that? I think, for me, it's crazy that you, you know, kind of identify that space when I, since I've been home, I've been, like, in different spaces, and I'm wanted to identify which one feels the most authentic. Because, like, in the work, there's different rooms. Mm-hmm. You have, you know, there's fundraising and the world of grant writers and funders and, like... The politically know. correct rooms. Absolutely. <laughs> the nonprofit industrial complex exists, right? So that energy in the world exists. Then you got, you know, laws and you got the capital and you got the stuff that goes down on there in the capital, you know, legislative. You know, you want to get this bill to change and then somehow this is one of impact folks and folks put their hope in this bill or this policy or this initiative that's all for the supposedly for the benefit of people for the benefit of people but this is a thing that's it's almost like a two-week paycheck you gotta wait you Mm -hmm. want to but in the meantime you are oppressed by this thing that you want to see change yeah yeah because we'll go to meetings and we'll say yeah 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 we hope this change and you'll feel good in the meeting but you'll leave the meeting right back to the reality uh, it ain't changed yet, and I'm going to sleep in it tonight. Whatever that may be. There's men in prison like that with the laws. You know, it's always, while I was in prison, there was always a lot of talk about this law going to change, and this law, and this name. And you will hear about all that stuff, but you will still sleep in the cell at night. So, like, even with the First Step Act with Trump, like, did that, I was so mad. Oh, I was so mad. I was so mad at even some of the commentators and the people who was, like, giving him credit for doing that and he's ending criminal justice and you know like it was coming rhetoric around that I was pissed because I knew it still didn't impact all of the people that I saw every day and all the people that I knew I knew that was something that was more for them than it was for the actual people when we're talking about people that's politically correct it was it's a bamboozled us right? trying to run some up that's what that was So, sitting there, what, so what is the question? Well, it was more of just the conversing around um, how we see people or how oh, yeah. we become servants of those who are directly right in front of us. I've been sitting here feeling creative. I'm probably going to go on the right because my mind, I appreciate these questions. You know what I'm thinking? No, what I was going to say was, so you have those spaces but the space that's feel the most authentic to me since I've been home is just like really pulling up on my people in real life. Like, so like now when my homies come home that I did time in prison with, I'm able to pull up on them and like, look, bro, I'm literally 100% legit. Like, I live like this now. This is possible for you. That's possible for you. Like, I'll take them to get something to eat. Like, you know, move like, like, being able to do that yeah. is what feels most authentic. Being able to like give hope 
and like vision and support to my real people who I know and I'm speaking to them in a language that they understand. That's where my heart at. Like, that's big. That's where my heart at. Yeah, yeah, my heart. Because most people.